Reaching into our annual meeting archives, we would like to start a series of delivering you the President's addresses from the previous annual meetings. Today is the presentation from AUA 2016, U.S. Healthcare Reform, Past, Present, and Future. Dr. Bill G. is a professor of surgery at the University of Kentucky. He is the president of the American Urological Association. His presidential address for 2016 is U.S. Healthcare Reform, Past, Present, and Future. President G. Thank you very much. Um, first, I do have a disclosure. Uh, I am a taxpayer in the United States, and it upsets me the way my money is being spent sometimes. Uh, the philosopher George Santayana observed, to know your future, you must know your past, and nothing is more correct when it comes to health care reform. There's literature on this, just like we've heard about literature this morning. Going back over 30 years, the death knell for private practice in the New England Journal, then strategies for reforming physician payments, New England Journal, a report to Congress in 1985 about physician fees, and again in 1987, another report to Congress. So this has been going on a long time. It just didn't happen today. The one individual who has had more impact on how physicians are paid and how practices are run is Bill Shaw, or Dr. William Shaw, at the Harvard School of Public Health. His PhD thesis in 1982 was titled Market Structure and Physician Fees, and he stated four seminal things in this uh, thesis. First, physician services and decisions should be open to non-physician review and competition. Second, non-physicians should work scientifically to evaluate procedures and assess risk and costs. Third, physician substitutes, he called them midwives and nurses, should work independently of direct physician supervision. And fourth, physician control over hospital admissions, discharges, drugs should end. All of these has happened to some degree. Dr. Shaw also believed in a socialized medicine uh, model, and this uh, has not happened. He is also the father of the resource-based relative value scale, or the RBRVS, or how many RVUs you generate, which affects everybody in this room who practices here in the United States. In 1988, he and Peter Brown published the three seminal uh, uh, things that they th wanted to accomplish with the RBRVS. First was to standardize patient payments, rationalize your incentives, and influence your decisions. They wanted to provide a neutral incentive structure. They wanted to, in fact, enhance cost-effectiveness. And looking forward, they wanted to address the coming shortage in primary care. Now, Dr. Shaw is not really responsible. It's this group of folks right here that you see in the slide. This is a joint session of Congress. And everything that has happened to us uh, is, uh, comes down to this group of individuals right here. Now, looking back at the history of health care reform in the United States, it started with Lyndon Johnson in 1965 when he signed Medicare and Medicaid into law. Then in 1972, Richard Nixon very dramatically expanded Medicare benefits. In 1974, President Jerry Ford signed the Privacy Act, which has come to be known as HIPAA. Then in 1977, Jimmy Carter created the Health Care Financing Administration, a huge bureaucracy to deal with everything that had gone before him. Then President Reagan in 1985 uh, was responsible along with Congress to let Harvard develop the resource-based relative value scale. 
President George H.W. Bush signed the bill in 1989 saying to enact the RBRVS several years later, and then on January 1st of 1992, Harvard fee schedule was implemented, fees went down, and it took about three years for the uh, in private insurers to adopt the same structure. Then in 1996, President Clinton signed into law what we call resource-based practice expense, which is the other half of the RVU. In 2007, George W. Bush signed Medicare Part D drug coverage. And then in 2010, President Obama signed the uh, bill now come to be known as Obamacare. And then finally, two challenges to the Affordable Care Act uh, were uh, upheld, or not upheld, the Supreme Court upheld the ACA in 2012 and 2015. So if you look over uh, this slide and count the presidents, there are nine presidents there. Uh, five Republicans and four Democrats. So really it's been a joint effort by all of them. Now, how about the present? Well, we've had some things that really impacted our, present, our, uh, our practices. First is the EMR. I call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, there's uh, Clint Eastwood with one of the spaghetti westerns of the same title. The good e-prescribing is safe. It makes us avoid uh, complications and reactions with other drugs. Uh, there are no lost charts as long as the power doesn't go off. And data collection for quality documentation is very important, as we will see in a couple of minutes. Now the bad, it can create a wall between the patient and the physician in the exam room, and it's often very difficult for any of us to understand what was done when we review the record of one of our colleagues or another uh, physician. And the ugly, it's time consuming, adding up to two hours to the typical physician regardless of specialty during the day. Constant software updates are very expensive, and we all concern now about having our software hacked. This was dramatically illustrated in this picture uh, in, published in the JAMA in 2011. This was made, drawing was made by an 11-year-old girl in a visit to the doctor, and over here is her mother holding her baby sister, the artist, her other sister on the exam table, and look over who's sitting over here with his back to everybody with a smile on his face, the doctor. So, uh, you know, seven years old, and she figured it out. Now, another thing that's happened is an absolutely dramatic increase in the role of administrators and bureaucrats to physicians. It's estimated in 2013 there were 18 bureaucrats for every one physician practicing medicine in the United States. This includes everyone not delivering direct patient care, not just in your office, uh, but in your uh, institution, uh, in the federal government, and in the insurance companies. And this next slide shows the dramatic growth of these individuals. This comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, if you notice here, just after 1990, this is when the Medicare fee schedule came in. Then we suddenly had the 1995 documentation guidelines with bullets, then 97 documentation guidelines requiring us to put all sorts of things into a medical record that weren't necessary. Then we had to have auditors come and audit us to make sure we were doing it right, and on and on. Now, <clears throat> Big data has also affected the AUA. As you may have seen at this meeting, uh, we have something called the Aqua Registry, Quality Registry. And this is a national urologic database that was launched by the AUA just two years ago in June of 14 to report healthcare quality and patient outcomes by collecting urologist-reported data and patient-reported data. The first effort is in prostate cancer. This is done by installing software on your practice server, which is HIPAA compliant, and this is a very powerful tool 
to understand variations in treatment and outcomes, look at quality of care, harms, compare yourself to the physicians in your practice and other physicians, and most importantly, to report your quality to government and insurers who are starting to require this. CMS just improved, approved the quality registry as a qualified clinical data registry with meaningful use program. And as of April 2016, over 356 practices have signed up with this. That's over 2,000 urologists. That's three times as many as we thought we would have by this time two years ago. So clearly this is a, viewed as a valuable thing by our members. Now, the government's also interested in data. Let's look at this slide from the Dartmouth Health Atlas of Winberg. This is percentage of male beneficiaries aged 68 to 74 who received a PSA test in 2010. Red means lots of PSA testing. Pale colors mean not so much. So why in New Jersey and Long Island are they doing so many PSAs? Why so few in Michigan and Colorado? Uh, most PSAs are ordered by primary care doctors, only about 6% by urologists, but this is very expensive and government and private insurers want to know why. Now, how are you paid by the resource-based relative value scale? You have a relative value for your work, the practice expense, and uh, where you, uh, uh, the professional liability insurance, and then it's multiplied times where you live, a geographic locator, and then times the conversion factor, which turns all this into dollars. This was never designed to create product, to measure productivity, but it is being used for that now. So very quickly, for a lap pyloplasty, the work relative value unit is 23, practice expense 9, medical liability insurance 2, multiply it times the current conversion factor, and that in a nutshell is where the money comes from. Now physicians do control the relative value units through the AMA relative value committee called the RUC, which was created in 1992 uh, when it, Medicare implemented the fee schedule. CMS agreed to let physicians, via a committee created by the AMA, to fight among themselves and determine the relative values. These are the members of this committee. They are roughly half physicians who do procedures and half physicians who are in the office not doing procedures. Urology has a permanent seat on this committee. This is what one of these meetings looked like in a hotel ballroom. Uh, this committee meets three times a year for four and a half days from Wednesday through Sunday morning typically, and this committee votes on the relative value. It takes 19 of the 28 to pass a value. Now, what's the impact of inflation on physician reimbursement? Well, a dollar in 1992 is a buck 70 today, and every year Congress authorizes a thing called a conversion factor. When the fee schedule came in by Medicare in 1992, the conversion factor was about $31. Well, adjusted for inflation, uh, that's about $52 today. But look what it actually is. The conversion factor is about $36 today. That's a 31% decrease. So that's one of the big problems. Now let's look at that surgical pyloplasty again and compare it to some other procedures. The work relative value, 23 here, a fem-fem bypass, 23 down at the bottom, uh, a transnasal excision of a pituitary tumor, something I wouldn't want to have done, it's about 23 as well. And it's called a relative value scale. So this is relative to other procedures. And I think most of us would agree within the realm of uh, procedures that this is a fair placement.
Now, I want to spend a minute on this slide, something I've tracked for many years, and this shows the huge, huge impact of the uh, Dr. Shaw and the fee schedule. We'll just pick out two things here. We'll look at a TOR of a prostate prior to the fee schedule in 1990 was reimbursing about $949. Today it's $871. But if you adjust this number for inflation over here, it comes to $1,700, and that is a 50% reduction. Let's go down to, a, this is the open radical prostatectomy tracked uh, since 1990, $2,300, $1,400 today, inflated, $4,200, a 67% reduction. So this has had a huge impact on fees in the United States. But looking down at the bottom, for office visits, they have increased. This is one of the goals of Dr. Shaw and the RBRVS, to, was to increase reimbursement and therefore uh, more primary care doctors, uh, and that has gone up about 17%. So it may not look bad, but it could have been worse. These changes have impacted every specialty, but the AUA, because of very vigorous engagement of your organization, has been more successful than many other specialties, and this has prevented millions of dollars of additional cuts, believe it or not, to reimbursement for urologic procedures since 1992. Now, if you've never heard of MACRA, uh, you better hear of it now. This is the most sweeping change in Medicare physician payment policy in the last 25 years. I'm not going to really talk about this in any detail, but you have two choices, MIPS and APM. Most of us will be under what is called MIPS. There are financial penalties if you don't do things right. There are benefits which the AUA Aqua program can help you with if you do things right. But if you haven't heard of these things, I think most of us have now, you better learn. So as we like to say, if you are not at the table, you may be on the menu. Now, the AUA has been very vigorous at the table. This is a cartoon meant to show many, many of the different aspects that the AUA is involved in. About 15% of our budget this year, or $6 million, will go to deal with the many things. It's not just about earning money. It's dealing with the NCI, the NIH, and many other entities within the government. The AUA also has four full-time employees just two blocks from Capitol Hill. They're your employees in our Washington office right there in that building. So let's uh, conclude by looking at the future. Well, urology is truly international. We have over 12,000 international AUA members in over 140 countries. Uh, the past has been uh, uh, international. Uh, when we look at the first cystoscope developed, working cystoscope in Germany in 1878, uh, we look at shockwave lithotripsy international, uh, and we look at this meeting, the many international presenters and contributors to this program. So this will continue in the future uh, to be very important for us and the AUA. Now, our problem is the number of uh, Medicare beneficiaries we're experiencing. Fifteen years ago, about 12% of our population was over age 65. In just 15 years over here, we'll have almost 80 million Medicare beneficiaries when 20% of our population will be over age 65. Now, what would, transparency in medicine in coming, is coming, and patients are comparing prices. Some people have a large deductible. Some of you may have a large deductible. If you could have had a back problem and you needed a spine MRI and you could have the same scan on the same GE machine, and you, who would you choose if you lived in Denver? Would you want to pay $463 or $3,520? The low-end prices are in freestanding radiologist-owned facilities and in uh, neurosurgery and orthopedic offices, and these were in hospital-based and academic medical centers. So patients are starting to shop. Looking at the past, it was volume-based, fee-for-service, no reward, 
for efficiency or quality, no shared financial risk, focus on inpatient care, and standalone systems did well. The sun is setting on that model. At present, financial rewards for quality and efficiency. Partnerships for shared risk and pro will proliferate. Advanced IT systems are absolutely essential. Fee-for-service is starting to fade away, and the number of hospitals will continue to decrease, already down about 2,000 from 1975 to present. How about the future? Well, healthcare is ripe for something we call creative disruption. It's happened to the legal careers of many. It's happened to accounting. It's happened to architecture. And now computers and creative disruption are affecting us. I'm going to make some predictions. These are my predictions. These are not predictions of the AUA. And uh, if you don't like them, I can duck behind the lectern. But these are all based upon things that I've observed in over 25 years of dealing with this, and now recently some things that have happened. First of all, urologists will continue to form larger and larger groups. Over 60% of you are currently in a large, well-managed organization. As the use of nurse practitioners and PAs grow and as urology is creatively disrupted, it will be realized that there is not a shortage of U.S. urologists if more care is delegated and transferred. Your quality data will become essential for reimbursement by Medicare and private insurance companies. More personal health devices will be invented. The Fitbit is just the first Star Trek tricorder we see Dr. McCoy over here with, with his super Fitbit. More urologic care is already being done and will be done by online Euro clinics. Genomic testing will become routine in finding the best drug for each patient's unique cancer, and we've seen some of this during this meeting. Insurance companies will actually buy and own hospitals and doctors because that is the only way they can control hospital costs. Personal genome analysis will lead in urology to pre-disease treatment, just as it has for breast cancer. Changing U.S. demographics will dramatically increase the diseases we treat. Insurance companies will pay to send patients to the site with the best outcome, even if thousands of miles away for some very complex urologic surgical procedures. Heritable gene editing on humans will happen. And, and I have seen some very interesting talk on it that a genetically engineered bacterium will be developed, which will literally eat urinary stones, thus eliminating the need for much stone surgery. And Dr. Stoller then won't have a chance to address us anymore. A national uh, physician labor union will be created. This will happen. And urology practices will join the union to negotiate better contracts. We might hire the Teamsters. They've been pretty darn successful. So finally, Obamacare will be modified, but it will not be repealed. The reason for this is that in 2013, after Obamacare fluttered along and more governors decided to log on, at that time, 18% of the U.S. population is it was uninsured. This has dropped dramatically in the last two and a half years to just 11%, and Congress will not have the heart to do this, regardless of who our next president is and what the proportion of Democrats and Republicans are in Congress. That's just my observation. So finally, your knowledge, those of you in this room, and your surgical skill will continue to be paramount in cancer, stone disease, reconstruction, surgery, and infertility, because remember, only a urologist can do these fascinating and wonderful things that we do. So in closing, I truly believe our future is bright as we turn the page. 
There are only about 10,000 urologists in the United States, but we're about 1.2% of all physicians. So there's room for us all to survive and be in the big tent if we as urologists respect each other's issues and we work together. Finally, I'd like to say thank you to the AUA for allowing me to be your president this past year. And I'd like to recognize my wife, Pam, who's sitting here in the front row. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.